Sweet. Hey, if you got your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And as you get there, let's just, uh, let's just open with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. Thank you, Lord, that where two or three come together in your name, you've promised, Lord, there am I with them. And so, Jesus, we welcome you here. We welcome your Holy Spirit here. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word by which you, you direct us and you, you teach us and you feed us. I thank you, Jesus, that you said that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we come this morning and we talk about turkey tonight, but we're ready to feast this morning too, Lord. Feast on your word. And we thank you for the written word that leads us to the living word. And this morning, Jesus, I ask that you would just give your church a spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts today, Lord, that we'd find strength, that we'd find encouragement in your word, Lord. We ask God just uh, your blessing upon the teaching now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right on. Well, I can't believe it. We're actually at the end of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> we took a while to get here. You know, we started this series in March. I never take that long to do a series, but it's just how it's been. And it's, it's been a fun series and it's been a haul. And, you know, personally, I was just reflecting as I was studying this week and just the things that I've learned and the way that I sense the Lord has changed me. And I hope it's been the same for you as we've come to this. And so, you know, as we come to this last chapter, we've just wrapped up three weeks in chapter 15, talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, resurrection of the dead, the resurrection body. It was pretty, pretty awesome stuff. Paul took us right to the height of heaven, to all the hope that we have, the hope of the resurrection. And now as we come back and dive into this last chapter, Paul's going to bring us right back down to earth. And he's going to get really uh, practical because the Christianity of Paul, really a Christianity that's of any worth is a practical Christianity. It's got rubber that meets the road. It's practical. And the Christian faith, I'm thankful for that. It sets our hope in heaven. Isn't that awesome? We, we, we have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have all these things that we're looking forward to. And yet at the same time, the gospel keeps us very grounded on earth. There's work to do. There's things to be done for the kingdom of God. You know, rather than some pie in the sky religion, we have one that, is, that, that has substance. That's got meat to it. We have a faith that calls us to get our hands dirty uh, for, for the kingdom. And so as I think about Christianity, I think about Jesus, you know, faith in Jesus Christ is not just some religious assent, some religious belief and, and philosophy that we lay hold of, but, it, but at the same, it, it's not just that, it, it's something that calls us to work for the kingdom of God here and now, today. And so, you know, look for with me for a second at the end of chapter 15. You see in verse 58, Paul closes off as he's been talking about the resurrection and we spent so much time on that. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so, you know, Paul called the church to labor faithfully Know that your work is not in vain. The message that we preach is a reality. The resurrection is a reality. The hope of the resurrection is a reality. And so we get to work knowing that uh, God, God will bring forth fruit. The reality of the resurrection um, must, you know, put my feet to faith today. And so we read this. Paul's going to get practical. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. Now, when we've been going through Corinthians, we've seen Paul addressing different questions. There's, it's not like the question is laid out, but there's this idea as you read the Corinthian letter that he is responding to things that he's been asked by the church. And that is the sense here too, that they had had this question in regard to the collection of the saints. And so after encouraging 
the church in regards to the resurrection, after encouraging them to labor faithfully, Paul gives this practical opportunity to do so and he talks about the collection for the saints. So again, verse one, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go also, they will accompany me. I think about Paul's relationship to the Corinthian church. It was pretty cool. When he uh, came to that city on his missionary journey and he began the work in Corinth and he began to plant that young church, he talked about this earlier. His heart was that he would not be a financial burden uh, to, that, to that young church. Instead, he labored with his own hands among them. He was a tent maker. He worked with Aquila and Priscilla, like he's going to mention later in this chapter. He even said earlier in this letter that I robbed other churches, like not at gunpoint, but that he, he took money from them, support from them, so that he could labor amongst the Corinthians and establish the work there without putting financial pressure on this new work. Now, at this time in this, this letter, when Paul's writing, this is his third missionary journey. He's in the city of Ephesus. We're going to get that sense further as we go through this chapter. Paul's in Ephesus. And part of the work that he was doing during the third missionary journey, was he, as he traveled from church to church, as he traveled from city to city, as he established new works and visited ones that he had already established, he was collecting um, a special relief offering for the poor in Jerusalem. And so uh, a number of factors really had led to the situation in Jerusalem. You might remember that there's a story in Acts chapter 11 that a man by the name of Agabus prophesied that there would be a great famine that would come over the land and that it would affect Jerusalem. Well, that had happened. It took place in the days of uh, Claudius. And maybe... Uh, the famine was happening. I, I, I happen to think probably Christians faced persecution from, from the, the Hebrew people. And so maybe work had dried up. There was uh, a number of different factors. You know, I actually think that when you read Acts, you know, the, the command of the Lord was to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Jerusalem came, became this place for the church where they started to have a holy huddle. You know, after Pentecost and after all the great work of them experiencing what God had done, they didn't necessarily uh, want to leave Jerusalem and the comfort of being a part of such an awesome work of God and go and take the gospel elsewhere. And so it was almost as if God uh, used persecution, used famine, used trouble in Jerusalem to drive the church out into the ends of the, ends of the earth. But what had happened was that the believers that were still in Jerusalem were poor. They were suffering. In Romans chapter 15, uh, Paul actually says that, he actually says this, that, that if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings of Israel, they ought also to be a service to them in material blessings. And Paul says there is an obligation upon those who are Gentiles and who have come to faith in Jesus Christ to the children of Israel, the Jewish people. And so in the time of Paul, the Gentile church as Paul's traveling around doing this missionary work um, the church was pleased to make a contribution for the poor saints in Jerusalem they were pleased to do it and Paul says you owe it to them you you owe it to them and it's for that reason I, I would say to us today as as believers in our time in our day and age whatever your political opinion is Whatever your attitude about Palestine and Israel and that whole thing, I would say this. You have to watch your attitude in regard to the Jewish people. In regards to the nation of Israel. You owe them. That's what the scripture says. It's not me. The scripture says we owe them and we should watch our attitudes. We owe it to them because we are benefactors of their spiritual blessings. We are benefactors of their blindness at this time to not 
identified Jesus as their Messiah. And should the Lord give you the opportunity to materially bless Israel, the Jewish people, man, you should do it. God will bless you for it. And this was a special missionary offering that Paul was gathering for a suffering church, for poor people in Jerusalem. And at the same time, I would say this, there's tons of practical lessons here in what we just read about giving. Here's one, giving's an act of worship. Each person in the church was to come, Paul said, on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, Sunday, and they should be prepared to give. Uh, the church, of course, meets on Sunday. We've kind of, you know, tie that to the resurrection. It's called the Lord's Day, which is a commemoration of the resurrection. The Holy Spirit even descended upon the church. Pentecost was a Sunday, the very first Pentecost. It's the start of a new week. You know, we talked about this last week, that, that the fact that the, Jesus was raised on a Sunday is, it communicates to us that God has begun a new work in the midst of his creation. He's not resting. It's not a Sabbath. He is at ab- about the work of his kingdom. And so we reserve time at the start of our week to worship. And one of the ways we worship is uh, to give. To give to the Lord. And our giving is, you know, not to be done, I would say, from some, se- some sense of duty. Uh, there's duty. But I want to say this to us. We don't have to give to the Lord. We get to give to the Lord. We get to worship God through giving. Giving is an act of worship. It's like singing. I don't have to sing. I get to sing. And it's the same in the case with giving, you know, I think about our church, we, we don't pass the plate. You might have noticed that if you're, if you're new here and you think, what the heck, how, how come they don't pass the plate around here? Uh, we've got our offering jars up there on the upper deck and um, I would say this, putting, putting something in the offering jar is an act of worship. You know, as you come and you bring your offering to the place where God's people have gathered to worship, there should be a moment of pause when you put something in the offering where in your heart you say, God, I thank you for your provisions. I thank you, God. I worship you with this act of giving. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to participate in offering something to you. And, you know, I think when we give to the Lord, when we bring our tithes and our offerings, it, it puts things in perspective in our life where we say, Lord, I don't I don't worship money, I worship you. And this is an act of worship to give. Giving's an act of worship. But we see here that Paul says too that, that there, there should be something systematic to our giving. Paul instructs um, the church here to set aside an offering at home. And when the first day of the week comes, it'll be gathered and it'll be collected. You know, this is actually one of the reasons, too, why we, we put the, the jars on the upper deck over there. Because, because giving is systematic, because giving is an act of worship, someone who sees their tithing and someone who sees their giving as an act of worship will come prepared to give. So whether we pass the plate or whether we don't pass the plate, it doesn't matter. Do you understand? They come prepared to give. They come prepared to worship the Lord with the tithe because they prepared at home. And they'll worship whether the, someone, you know, passes a plate or whether it's a jar. Actually, think about that. We have online giving with our, with our church. You can go to the church website. You can, with a few clicks, give. It's a great option. But I think there is something irreplaceable about sitting down, looking over my stuff, writing out a check, putting it in my wallet or stopping at a bank machine and getting cash and bringing it to the house of God as an act of worship, as a, a way of presenting your offering to the Lord with a heart of worship. And it's not someone playing on your heartstrings, you know, it's not someone manipulating you, playing on your emotions by, and getting into your wallet, you know. It's you prepared to worship because you understand from the word of God that giving is an act of worship. should be systematic. And Paul seemed to expect that everyone in the church would give, rich or poor. 
Anyone with income had the privilege to worship the Lord and, and the privilege to share what they have with the poor. And, and he says it, it should be proportionate in the sense, as God prospers, you give. You know, Paul says that, that a person should give as he prospers. The idea being that those who have more should give more. In the Old Testament, we know the principle, it was 10%, right? That's what the Jewish people brought, 10% of their income. The New Testament never designates for us what the percentage is. And so some say, yeah, it's 10%. It should be more. It's everything. You can set it wherever you want. And I, and I, I think this, I think 10% is a good starting point. As God prospers you, you can give more. You know, I was thinking about, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my pop, my grandpa, when he passed away and his kids began to just uh, put everything together and, and organize his estate, it was discovered that he was giving in excess of 40% of his income. And he was a pensioner. He, he wasn't wealthy, just had a little, a little condo, but he gave proportionately in regards to his heart for the kingdom and how God had provided for him. And you know, I would say in our culture, here's the deal, you know, often as we, we earn more, uh, we get ourselves in the burden of more financial obligations. Does that happen to anybody out there? Certainly happens in my house. And it takes more to live and we're not able to give because we've trapped ourselves in, financial in the financial obligations of just acquiring things. Things that moth and rust will destroy and we spend rather than invest. Those are two different things. We spend on things that rust and moth destroy and we fail to invest in the kingdom. We miss the opportunity. And you know, when Jesus has your heart, you can maintain a, a close hand. I, 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 was, I was thinking about our house and how we operate. Um with our giving and with our finances. And um, yeah, we, we, direct, we direct our tithe to our church. But then as God gives opportunity, we find things elsewhere that we like to support and we get behind. And so we do a number of different things. And one of the things was, um, you know, this year, I... I yeah, I'm just going to tell you this. This year, one, one of my world, vi uh, world vision kid that we had expired. He moved, he moved, expired. He, he moved out of the region where he was. And so world vision said, the kid's gone. We don't know where he went. You know, families up and do that at times. They packed up, they moved somewhere and we don't know where the family is. And so do you want to take on another kid? And we had supported that kid for quite a few years. And I said, no, you know what? I don't actually. I got something else that's on my heart and I want to do that. And so I, I want to tell you what it is because um, it, it's in regards to, uh, what's that ministry we got over there? Sick, I'm blanking out, Brian. Far-reaching ministries. I wanted to get involved with far-reaching ministries because far-reaching ministries goes into area where believers are suffering persecution. There's some awesome ministries out there that are working in restricted access areas. And so I wanted to get involved in something that was restricted access. And so I asked them, I said, I'm redirecting this money. I'm going to send it to you guys. And I want you to direct it to something that is restricted access, particularly in a Muslim nation where people are at danger if word gets out that they're involved in doing things there. So I don't know where it's going. I don't know all the deal, you know. And... You know, we're crunching some numbers and then it's like, whoa, sick, you know, something's got to give here. Something's got to give. And, I, and I'm just being honest with you, okay? I want to be sincere this morning. I thought, man, you know, I can put extra gas in the truck and drive around in my big machine and waste fuel or I can do something for the kingdom of God that matters. You know, I think I, you know, I'm just wrestling through that. And I know we're all wrestling through things like that. And that's where I want to encourage you. When Jesus has your heart, you cannot maintain a closed hand. You can't spend money wastefully and not think in regards to the kingdom of God. And I want to encourage you. Where is God calling you to direct, to be open-handed? To not close your hand, but to give, to give 
your money. You know, I, um, yeah, I'm just going to put it on the table here a little bit this morning. I am a guy who's very torn in my heart over the whole Syrian refugee thing. I don't know where I stand. Can't make up my mind. You know, I think when a Syrian refugee lands in Canada, boom, yes, 100%, I'm behind it and I will help. But if you want to know if I feel like I should put money out, I'm not totally sure. So you can be mad at me, you can be agree with me, I don't care. I'm just being honest to say that I'm torn. But I'm very thankful that I have an opportunity to invest in a ministry that is behind restricted access lines and can do that and be involved there. And so there is something that is worshipful, that is to be systematic, that is to be open-handed about the way that we handle our money if Jesus has our heart. And, and, and Paul instructs the church here, he even gives special delegates that will handle and manage the offering and help get it there to Jerusalem. You know, I think it's a grievous thing when a ministry mishandles money, when a ministry mismanages funds that were entrusted to them, funds that were entrusted to God. I would say in regards to our church around here, you ever got any financial questions? It's all open. Shoot, okay? Come and ask. There is nothing hidden. We don't publish numbers. You won't turn to the back of your Sunday program and say, here's last week's tithe and here's the budget and here's what the offering and it's very intentional because we don't want that to be our focus. We don't want to walk in here and be handed a program and flip it over to see what last week's giving was. It's not what we're about. We don't care. We trust the Lord to provide. And finances is a sign of spiritual health, but it's not the first sign. And so we put out a year-end statement. We have an accountant go over the finances. It's all there on the Connection Center. You can take a look if you, if you want to. And, you know, it's the same even counting numbers. You look around here, you know all of us can count. We don't have to put a number in a program or something like that. Uh, and we don't officially count because that's not our emphasis. Don't care. We want to be a church that goes deep rather than wide. And if we go deep, God can bring the width. We want to go wide. And so as I think about some of these things that Paul is saying here, it is resurrection power that should motivate the people of God to be open-handed. It is resurrection power that should motivate the people of God to say, I don't worship money. I worship Jesus Christ. My hope is not in this earth or in the, in the purchasing of things on this earth. My hope is in heaven. My hope is in the resurrection of the dead. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my feet are on the earth. I'm going to be open-handed to things that are in regards to the kingdom of God. I'm going to give to the kingdom. And in Corinth, as messed up as they were, I mean, we've seen that messed up church. They gave for the poor saints. Verse five, Paul says this. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I want to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. You know what I love about Paul is that, that Paul is flexible for the Lord. You read that in his, in his stuff often, that he made his plans, but he understood that human plans were subject to change because the Lord might move them. The Lord might mix things up. As you know, there's a proverb that says, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. And that was Paul. Paul made his plans. He sensed the leading of the spirit, but he understood that things were up to the will of God. And if God wanted to move things, he could move them. And one of the things um, we see in this chapter, and we'll see it more as we go on, is the importance that Paul put on his relationships, on his friendships. Uh, the, the relationships that he had in the kingdom of God. He loved people. Paul loved the church. Paul loved to be with God's people. Paul loved to visit with God's people. Paul loved to be in their homes and to have them spend time together. And in his travel plans, he said, look it, I don't want to just pass through. I want to spend time with you. And Paul was seeking the will of God. He was seeking to determine God's plans. 
Uh, and he made his plan knowing that he may make the decisions that, that God might move, that might not be the will of God, and God could bring a course correction anytime he wanted. And Paul did not see people as an interruption. You know, people aren't an interruption. You know, sometimes some of you guys will call and say, oh, sorry, I know you're busy. And I always think, no, I have time for you. You're not an interruption. We're the family of God. You know, it's like your kids. Are your kids an interruption? We're family. We're not an interruption in one another's life. Our relationships matter. You know, in seeking the will of God, here's Paul saying, God, direct me. Give me direction. You point me here. I'll go to Macedonia. Maybe I'll winter there. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. You know, you think about God's will for your life, where God's directing you. Some folks just get like paralyzed. Oh, I might make a mistake. I don't know. Am I supposed to go this way? Am I supposed to go that way? And they just are stuck in this place of indecision. Um, others make impulsive decisions. They don't think them out and they rush ahead without waiting on the Lord. And I would say this. We should take time in determining the will of God. Doesn't mean you can lay out five years. But we can, you know, take time in determining the will of God and then then act, then make decision with wise counsel and with going to the word of God and spending time in prayer and following the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Take steps of faith. And know this, that if you're off track, God will bring correction. He will get you on course. He will make course correction. And, and Paul discovered in the seeking of God's will, that God had opened a particular door of ministry for him. Look, check it out, verse 8. He says this. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul comes to Ephesus. He finds open doors. He finds opportunities to win the the loss, but Paul also saw this. He saw opportunities and he saw obstacles. And though there were obstacles, even opposition, if you read more about Ephesus in the book of Acts and some of the things that happened there, uh, there was real opposition. And Paul recognized in Ephesus that opposition, that obstacles were actually a sign of open doors. You ever think that way? Usually we don't, right? So, well, if it's not smooth... If it's not easy, if the water's not flat, the door must be closed. Not Paul. Paul saw opposition and he went, yeah, open door. That's the direction. What a neat thought, eh? That he did that as he sought God. And sometimes opposition is the sign that the door is open. That the enemy is resisting. That the enemy knows that there's a work coming for the kingdom of God and that there's great potential. And so he flares his head. He, he wrestles. He fights back. You know, in the book of Acts, in, in Ephesus, it became dangerous for Paul. You know, almost cost him his life. The opposition was fierce because the work of God was rapidly advancing there. I mean, in Ephesus, as they preached the gospel, the whole economy was turned upside down. The silversmiths were running out of work because no one was buying their idols anymore. And people made plans to take Paul's life. There was opposition, but there was open doors. And, you know, when you face opposition, do not assume that God is closing doors. Maybe the enemy's just losing ground. You know, like the child who's told no <laughs> in the grocery store. You ever had that one happen, parents? You know, no, you can't have that. Okay, I'm going to make a scene. I'm going to drop on the floor here. I'm going to kick. I'm going to scream. And I'm going to embarrass you into submission, parent. <laughs> not talking about my kids. I'm talking about your kids. Okay. <laughs> Verse 8, so he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 9, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. See, Paul was not just an optimist. He wasn't a, a, a pessimist. He was realist. He was a realist. A door was wide open and there were adversaries. 
It's a pretty realistic appraisal of, this, of the situation. And, and actually, this is a sign of maturity. They can say, look, it, it's not going to be smooth, but God's opened a door. We're going in. He says in verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him to ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. We know Timothy he was a, you know, Paul's son in the faith. He was raised in a Christian home, but it was Paul who led him to Jesus. And Timothy was a young man with a heart for the kingdom of God. And so Paul would often send Timothy into difficult situations and difficult places. And Paul gives this instruction to the church. Uh, put him at ease among you. Let no one despise you. We know this about Timothy. When we read about him almost anywhere, you get the sense that Timothy was someone who was weak physically. He was weak emotionally. He was timid is the word we often use for Timothy. And Paul was always encouraging the gifts that he saw in Timothy. He sent him into difficult situations. He gave him difficult things to do in difficult situations in churches. And I would say this, Paul pushed Timothy. And Timothy went on and he became a giant in history, in church history. He went on to pastor the church in Ephesus. And, uh, and so Paul says, I'm sending my son there. Look out for him. Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Uh, neat picture here. Paul's going to keep dropping names here, just friendships, people that are co-laborers and they're working together. And he talks about Apollos. Apollos was powerful evangelist, preacher in the early church. And, you know, Paul strongly urged Apollos to go to uh, Corinth. But Apollos was a man with his own mind. Apollos was a man who with his own ears could hear the direction of the Lord. And there was no hierarchy in the early church. You know, Paul wasn't the boss telling everybody what to do. Apollos could say no. That's not leading me that way. I don't sense that, Paul. You want me to go there, but I don't sense the Lord is directing that way. And it's cool. You know, I just, you read that and you think, wow, Apollos could say no. And Paul could say, man, I'm not his boss. I'm not his competitor. We're not competing here. I don't need him to do what I, I say. And I think that's another Sign of maturity that Paul was not threatened by Apollos. But they worked together as the Lord led them in regards to the kingdom. They were on the same team. And so Paul says this great verse. Look at verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And so he directs this church, this Corinthian church, be watchful. That means be alert. Be vigilant. The enemy is at work. The scripture tells us that he is a lion that cruises around roaring and trying to frighten and seeking prey. Jesus said he comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's what Satan is seeking to do. And the reality is, is we are never safe from attack. And so we got to be watchful, paying attention. Being alert, being vigilant. So stand firm in the faith. Have stability. He tells a church that's very immature. Have mature stability. And he says, uh, act like men. That's a good line. Us guys, we like that. The old King James. Somebody got a King James there for us? Come on, give it to us, Carrie. What does it say? Quit like men. Quit like men. Stand up and act like a man. You know, I remember, sorry, what's, quit you like men. And I, I like that, that earlier you might remember, what did Paul call this church? Babies, infants. I'd like to call you mature, he says, but I can't. You're infants. And now he tells them, put the childish stuff behind you. Put infancy behind you and man up. 
Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Quit you like men. Act like men. Be strong. And you know, that was a call to courageous manliness at an hour when maturity was needed. Yeah, we live in an age where there's, there's an, an hour where there's a need for maturity. I look at the culture around us, there is need for maturity. Act like men, especially to the men in the room here. We should be mature in the midst of our culture. And, and, and Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. You know, I think, what, what is it that makes manliness godly? You know, Spurgeon had some line, I forget, he said, a, a, a beard is manly. And I think he said to smoke cigars too was manly. But um, that's for another sermon. Um, you know, I think what is it that makes manliness godly? And the answer is love. Let all that you do be done in love. When a man acts like a man and then he does everything that he does in love, he makes his decisions on the basis of love, that equals godliness. It's been called velvet steel. You know, I was reading in my quiet time this, this week, and I'm actually going to reference this tonight in the devotional, but I was reading in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and there's this great story there where the Israelites go to war, and they take the ark of God into war with them to face the Philistines. And the Philistines, when the ark of God comes into the camp of Israel, the scripture says that the people began to shout, man, that the ground shook because they were so jacked to have the presence of God in their midst. And the Philistines just were freaked right out. They said, what is going on in that camp over there? And they were afraid for their lives. And they said to one another, we've got to act like men. And guess who won the battle? The Philistines did. They took the ark of God from the Israelites. Act like men. Verse 15. Now I urge you brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Uh, here's this family, the household of Stephanus. They've devoted themselves to service. Uh, some translations actually say this. They were addicted to it. They were addicted to serving the people of God. You know, when they saw a need, they went to work without someone asking them. They labored for the church. They labored for the kingdom. They were Paul's uh, helpers. And it wasn't just dad. It wasn't just mom. It was the, the whole household as a family. And you know, you think about families that you, you see like that, where the whole family serves God. It's an awesome thing when a family serves the kingdom together. When parents, you know, drag their kids around, serving here, serving there, serving the kingdom, and the kids get passionate about Jesus, maybe more than their parents, and they go about the work of the kingdom. And this was a family that had an open home for the work of the ministry. And their kids got hooked on the ministry. And they were a family that labored together for the kingdom. Paul says, oh man. They, they were a blessing to him. He says, honor them. Uh, be subject to such as these. He says, uh, again, of this man Stephanus in verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acacia Cuss or something like that. Because they made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So here's these three men. It looks like they're probably the official committee that was sent from the city of Corinth to Paul in the city of Ephesus. They probably came to meet with Paul to discuss the problems that were happening in Corinth, to ask him the questions that they had that he's answering, uh, that they had that he's answering in this letter. And here these guys come to discuss church problems. Think about that, you know. They gathered to meet church, to discuss church problems. And what happens? Paul says, these men refreshed my spirit. What a, what a great picture. They were a blessing to me. They, they were a blessing. I mean, we were talking about problems, but we were talking about Jesus. 
And we were talking about issues, but we were finding solutions. And we were, we were talking about doctrinal problems, but we were ta- talking about the way the church could be discipled and grow and be taught doctrine. I was refreshed by these things, Paul says. And so he writes back to the church in Corinth, and he says, man, you got some good people. With these dudes, you got some good folks. And these leaders and this family... This family that you've got that opens their house and, let's, you know, submit to that kind of leadership. Honor those who faithfully serve the Lord. And in that, God gets the honor. You know, I, I think about our church. I'm so thankful for the people here. I just think, man, we got some awesome folks that love Jesus, that want to serve Jesus, that open their homes. That, like, I mean, we've got some great folks. Thank God for them. You know, it's interesting as you read this, think, wow, it's kind of funny this chapter's in here. Like, think of where we were in the last few weeks in the resurrection and now how it just gets down to talking about different things and relationships and stuff like that. You think, Lord, why'd you put that there? Why is all this here? I mean, some of this stuff, I don't know, certainly not the resurrection of the Lord kind of teaching. But it's very, it's very practical. It's very relational. It's even, you could even say, wow, this is just proof that this is a letter that's authentic because the Holy Spirit took the time to include all of the relationships and the church in Ephesus and Macedonia and Corinth and this leader and that leader and this relationship and that relationship because they matter. You know, friendships matter. Serving Jesus together is fun, isn't it? You know, I, I remember... When I graduated from high school, I, couldn't, I, I grew up in this town. I couldn't get out of here quick enough. And so at 17, I was gonzo. And here in this community, I had great buddies, great friends that I'd grown up with all my life. Friends that uh, are still, mean so much to me and that I still long to have an eper, even deeper relationship with. But something happened to me when I was 17 and I left and then I said, I'm going to live for Jesus. I began to develop different kinds of friendships. Friendships that centered around Jesus. Friendships that centered around serving God. Friendships that, that uh, existed in the, in the church and, and those friendships were built with Jesus Christ as the center. And I got to tell you, you know, whether it was in in church or in home group or youth group or men's group or uh, amongst other pastors now. Those friendships are the deepest friendships that I have in my life because they're centered around Jesus Christ. They mean something to me. They're long lasting. Though we go to different places and we go to different churches or we serve in different places, they're relationships that matter because they're centered on Jesus. And Paul had that kind of relationship with a husband and wife team by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. Again, he says in verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. These are friends, man. Hearty greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, Aquila and Prissa, Uh, Paul stayed with this husband and wife team when he first came to Corinth and started uh, the work of the church there. They were fellow tent makers with him. They they shared the same trade. So they worked together during the day laboring. And after work hours, they labored together on the kingdom of God and the things of God. And when Paul left Corinth, he left Aquila and Prissa there in charge for a time. And then they followed Paul to Ephesus. When Paul went to Rome, they went to Rome with him and the church met in their house there as well. They were all friends serving Jesus together. When Paul sent Timothy back to Ephesus and Timothy eventually became the pastor there, guess who went to Ephesus to help Timothy? Aquila and Prissa. They were a couple that was willing to pack up and move their home as the Lord led for the benefit of the church. They would serve in various roles within the church uh, where they lived. I mean, these are awesome people. 
the kind of people who help build the work of God, who pick up and do whatever needs to be done. And you know, I, I think about these guys, Aquila and Prissa, and I, I just, together with the church in their house, Paul says, they send you hearty greetings. All the brothers greet you. Friendships built around serving Jesus. Deep friendships. They've been in the trenches together. And Paul says, greet one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, I would say a good handshake will do. Not a flimsy limp one, but a good solid handshake or maybe a hug, you know, save the kissing for your spouse. I don't know, whatever. We have a different culture, right? Uh, than one that kisses one another. That's your comfort zone. That's cool. Verse 21. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I read this greeting with my own hand. And probably up to this point, Paul's been dictating the letter, and now at this point, as it's wrapping up, he takes the pen in his own hand. He adds that personal touch. And he says something here in verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Uh, the King James says it's another way. Actually, it says it this way. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema. Maranatha. That's what the verse says. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema. Maranatha, Paul says. He, he adds these words and our English translations change in this ESV that we're using. But he uses a Greek word anathema, which means Eternally accursed. If anyone has no love for Jesus, let him be destroyed, accursed. Pretty strong language. But then he says this second word, Maranatha, which is an Aramaic word. Uh, it's two words. Maran, the, the Lord, and Atha is a verb, to come. The Lord come. The Lord to come. Come, Lord. We often say. Ironside uh, paraphrases first this way. He said, if a man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall be condemned at the coming of the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. That those who do not love Jesus will be condemned at his coming. It's pretty, uh, well, I, I think about this. If a man love not the Lord. Wow, Paul, that's pretty serious, but Remember what Jesus said is the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. The entirety of who we are is called to love God. This means that if I love Jesus, Jesus has got to come first before everybody else. Jesus has got to come first before everything else. I have to delight in the presence of Jesus above all things. That's what it means to love Jesus. Paul said elsewhere, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Philippians he said, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. It was David who said in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. And as we consider the words of Paul here, you know, I would say this, the, the secret of a happy life, they say it's a happy wife, but the secret of a happy life, a holy life, a victorious Christian life is passionate devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if someone doesn't love Jesus, let him be anathema, accursed. See, my friends, to not love Jesus is sin. To not love Jesus means my heart is in rebellion against the one who sits on the throne of the universe. 
To not love Jesus is to reject the most wonderful character, the most wonderful person in all of creation. To not love Jesus is to refuse the one who is called the lover of my soul. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? You know, I'm not asking you what your mind says, I believe. You know, there's, there's that, that wants to happen in, in your head a little bit as a Christian. You say, yes, I believe that. That's my doctrine. I believe I love Jesus. We're not talking about something here. We're talking about something here. Do you love Jesus Christ? When you ask yourself that question, do you love Jesus? What does your heart say? Not your mind. What does your heart say? And if you don't love him, it, it's refusal, you know, it's rebellion, it's rejection of the one who loves you. You know, I, you can serve Jesus for a long time and it can slowly drift from here to here. Or you can love Jesus for a short time and it's something here that's never touched the heart. It's got to be something that is in the heart. And there is something about the heart that has to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. There's, there's no new birth without surrender. There is no salvation without a heart of submission. But there is joy when the love of Jesus and the power of God is breathed into our lives by the Holy Spirit. Do you love Jesus Christ? I mean, in all the things that Paul has said right from this letter, from chapter 1 to chapter 16, this is the thought that he closes with. If someone loves not Jesus, let him be a curse. My friends, Jesus loves you. And if you'll surrender your heart to him and cultivate that, you'll fall in love with him. And so Paul says in verse 23 in closing here, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Let's stand.